Hi, I'm Angela Ross, host of the SoCal Voices podcast, featuring candid conversations exploring news, culture, and politics that impact Southern Californians. SoCal Voices highlights Southern Californians making positive contributions to community and enhancing lives. From newsmakers to creatives to that powerful person you may not know but should, you'll find them on SoCal Voices, available at SoCalVoices.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to our podcast. We're a mother-daughter duo with a twist. I'm Taya, and I was adopted. And I'm Roz, her birth mom. I went on a search at the age of 36, and I found her. Listen in as we come together to unpack the layers of our journey. Hello there, and welcome back to I Found Her, the podcast where we discuss all things adoption and reunion, but with a twist. I'm Taya, and with me is my birth mom, Roz. How are you today, Roz? I'm great, Taya. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. That's good, good. We have an interesting session today. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think we're going to talk about today? <laughs> we're going to talk about fathers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Our daddy. Our dads. <laughs> For me, there's two, right? <laughs> yes. You are blessed. You've got two moms and two dads. I know. How lucky are you? I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think our our episode today has definitely probably been one in the making. Um, we've kind of specifically, I think, waited until the month of June to tap into talking about my birth father, right, and giving our audience a sense of the storyline, the journey of that relationship as well. Yes. So I think we've got plenty to talk through in that area today. One of the things that I want to make sure that we let our listeners know is that I did a poll in our last episode about graduation where I mentioned, you know, hey, would you recommend our podcast to a friend? And I'm seeing some votes come in, and I just want to encourage our listeners to continue to vote. I will add additional polls as well as questions um, to each episode that we do because we really, really do welcome your feedback. Your feedback supports us in kind of knowing what the topics are that you may be interested in and how to kind of steer our episodes so that you are learning along with us. So be sure and check out the polls as you listen in to our podcast. Anything else that you would add there, Roz? No, I, I would love to hear more feedback, more questions, and more comments about how we're doing. Because, you know, part of the purpose of our podcast is designed to feed information to the audience so that they're learning about more resources and things that they might have in common with us and maybe not, but are just curious about it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, then. Well, let's start diving into our topic for today. Um, as I was considering 
the topic of fathers, one of the things that I wanted to do was to be very mindful as to how we bring up this topic, because in some ways it is a delicate subject matter. It's a topic that does involve another person who is not in the room, but I want to remain authentic to his side of the story. So this has meant me having kind of those side conversations along the way as we prepare for today's episode so that it is coming from a place um, of care and consideration to all of us. Anything that you would add in there, Roz? No, but I am so grateful that you consider the care and consideration of all parties involved, especially your birth father and your father, because this is the month for Father's Day. And it's important that we share that side of the story. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So let's give a little bit of context first about birth fathers in general as it relates to adoption. And then we can narrow it more to our story. So one of the things that I think it's important to note is that to give context around the time frame, again, we're looking at the birth year for me was 1970. So when we think back to that time frame, much of what was going on back then is that birth fathers at times are not even aware that they have a child on the way or in the world. Um, during the time of my birth um, and of decades prior, out of wedlock pr pregnancy carried such an intense stigma that unwed mothers were usually silently ferried away until delivery and the adoption was complete. So fathers were rarely part of the decision-making. In fact, back then, most adoptions, as we've touched on, were closed. And that also means the identity records are sealed. So prior to 1972, adoption didn't even require the consent of an unmarried father. But interestingly, today, birth fathers' rights have changed. And they vary from state to state. But what I saw in the research was that at least 24 states now have what is called a putative father registry, which basically allows unmarried fathers to establish their potential paternity and attempt to maintain legal rights. And in addition to that, there is now at least 60 to 70% of adoptions are now considered open. Um, and 95% include at least some minimal type of contact between birth and adoptive families. This shift in adoption culture came after research showing that adoptees in open adoptions actually fare better personally and socially. So how does this connect to our story, right? So with my birth being in 1970, there wasn't a state law that required you to inform my birth father of your intent to place me for adoption. And so you guys, 38 years after my birth, at the prompting of me, I then ask about 
who's my father? Who's my birth father? It was actually 12 months after I had been in reunion with you, Roz, that I actually posed that question of if you could let me know if you had any information about my birth father. What do you think there, Roz? That's a lot for us to unpack so far. Um, but what do you feel comfortable sharing? Well, I think we have talked many times about this before, and it was very difficult for me to remember uh, your birth father because, you know, after that first entanglement, like they say, there was nothing. And so I felt kind of uh, abandoned. You know, there was no communication, no more dates, nothing. And life just went on. And then when I discovered I was pregnant, I was sent away and then came back and tried to resume a normal life, finish high school. And then I went to college and then I got married and life was wonderful. But I was the only one who knew about you, except for my parents. So it's kind of like, I really don't remember. So when you asked me, uh, what can you tell me about my birth father or where is he? I really didn't know. And I had to stop and think about, well, who might know where he is? I mean, it's been decades and no communication. I think I did see him at a relative's funeral once, but it was like 20, maybe 25 years later. And it was very cordial. Hi, how you doing? What you been up to? That kind of thing. But nothing brought up about even if he suspected anything. So I doubt he did. And I don't know what could have been different if he knew. But of course, the destiny would be changed. Mm -hmm. And there would be a whole different dynamic if he inquired. I don't know if I would have told him in my young age, but, you know, if there was any suspicion, no one said anything, not even when I wasn't present in high school. Yeah, yeah, we've touched on that. The, I mean, it was such a secret, right? right? And where there could have been the possibility of, someone noticing your absence, at least to your knowledge, that didn't occur. No, you know, no, one, court, no yeah. one questioned. No mm -hmm. one asked me. No one questioned it. Your birth father didn't approach me. Um, I think I just fell into a hole. It's like uh, the abyss. Mm -hmm. The unknown, the gray area, the silence, the secret. And it just happened. And that's how it was hard to, when you asked about him, it was like, I really didn't know. I really yeah. didn't know how to find him or even tell him now at so many years later that there was a child. And if he would remember me, he might not even remember me as someone who was someone that he was involved with at some point in his teenage years. 
So I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. I remember too, you know, I, I kind of noted that it was about 12 months later, roughly. Yeah, about 12 months later that I even brought it up. And I think I was intentional about my timing of that because it was so much just for me to finally find you that I think trying to manage the reunion of you and family and my parents, I, I just remember being pretty intentional about, I'm not going to jump into, okay, so who's my birth father kind of thing really quick. Um, but when the time did arrive where I thought, yeah, I think it would be good for me to know um, even more about my family history, you know, I did move forward with asking you, you know, that question. And, and, and again, we'll, we'll continue to unpack this as we go. But I do remember being pretty intentional about when I asked. Right? Yeah, I could tell that there was um, a delay that you wanted to know, maybe because you wanted to get to know me first. And then when you asked, I felt you were ready. And so it was my duty to try to find him and see how the two of you could connect because I felt that that would have been a wonderful reunion as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I thought was interesting and, and, you know, I've shared, shared this in previous episodes, you know, some of the books that I have in my library that kind of support my understanding of adoption. And so Coming back to a book that I have mentioned in the past, where in fact we've, you know, titled one of our episodes actually Coming Home to Self, I, I want to share an excerpt um, that is very specific to birth fathers. And let's kind of see, you know, what it kind of stirs up and, and prompts us to talk a little bit more through. So in the book, Coming Home to Self, by Nancy Verrier, there is this page where it spe speaks specifically to the birth father's grief. She goes to say, no one talks about the birth father's grief. It is assumed that he hit the trail and hasn't had a thought about his child or the mother of his child since. Yet it has come to my attention that many birth fathers have been in pain about the loss of their children as well. Some of them didn't support the mother in her wish to keep the baby, and some of them, wanting to keep the baby, felt helpless in the decision to relinquish. Often the father wasn't consulted. Sometimes his parents, like the birth mother's parents, were adamant about their giving up the baby for adoption. Whatever the scenario, very few of the relationships between birth fathers and birth mothers survived, and the adversarial aspect of the relationship that resulted from the surrendering of the baby often persists into adulthood. Twenty years later, 
many birth mothers are still very angry at the birth fathers for their lack of support at the time of the birth of their child. What has transpired for him, lo, these many years, is the question asked. Many fathers did what many mothers have done, become numb. They pushed all thoughts of their children out of their minds and got on with life. Others have never stopped thinking about the babies they never got to see. They have lived with a veiled wish that someday they would meet their children and begin a relationship. Many have been left with a guilt they find difficult to verbalize. What I want to emphasize here is that we should not assume that birth fathers don't have feelings and a sense of sorrow about what happened to them, to the mother, and to the baby. Some of them realize that they forced the girls to have sex against their will and know this was wrong. Some of them genuinely loved their girlfriends and wanted to marry someday. As they matured, the enormity of the act of relinquishment, the loss of their children, became more clear. Although some of them can forgive the youths they were, who could allow that to happen, there is a certain sense of responsibility as men that they still feel, or that they now feel, and about which they may always have a sense of guilt. But what about the sorrow is the question. Sometimes birth fathers don't realize the enormity of the sorrow until the child comes back into their lives. It may be easier for the fathers to get on with life than the mothers, but the bursting into their lives of the child who is now an adult can bring up a host of feelings, not the least of which is sorrow. Although aware that those lost years can never be retrieved, the loss of the experience of watching his child grow up can plunge a birth father as well as a birth mother into an abyss of sorrow. The father, too, needs to allow himself to grieve and to have a ritual for healing some of that grief. I know that was a long section there, but all of it kind of had, I think, a certain perspective that I wanted to draw out for our time today. What, what are some thoughts that came up for you as you kind of listened to me read that section? I'm glad you read that section. I never thought about the grief and loss of the birth father and how he felt. It was as though I was numb, like you said, and then time just went by. And I look at you now as an adult and how open and welcome to this discussion you have been. And ever since you asked about your birth father, I am just so glad that you connected with him. And whatever grief and loss he may have felt, I hope that through these years he has recovered from that and moved forward because we can't bring those years back. And watching you grow, I wanted to see that as well. But the times that we were in, our immaturity, perhaps, the lack of communication that we never continued, all of that lent itself to 
not being able to do anything at the time. But, oh, how we are making up for that now, right? Yes, yes, yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I have learned along the way um, in my conversations with my birth father was that he believes that if he had known about the decision that was being made, that he probably would have stepped in. And yes, it would have had a very different outcome. And I believe, you know, that that's quite possible, that that could, is a possibility that that could have been the choice. So I definitely don't want to invalidate, you know, his perspective. Um, but I know if that did happen, <laughs> there would, yes, destiny, as you have used that word, would be very different right now, right? Um, what I also think about is that that is a part of him that is still probably healing in him, um, that there is, you know, more than likely still some sadness because he did lose so many years and did not as well have that experience of watching me grow up. I think he thinks that if, um, similar to how you had shared that the decision, you know, was made for you, that in a sense, there wasn't a choice provided. So that decision in a sense was made for him as well um, because his parents weren't consulted. And so I know these can be hard feelings um, to reconcile and we've been in reunion as well, you know, for many years. And I think over the time, we have now been able to evolve into a much healthier relationship that, you know, initially we did have some mishaps along the way. But I am very glad that we are in a much better place today. So I'll pause here and, and see if you have anything further, Ross. Yes. I, I think about that sometimes if he were able to step in. But then I remember, you know, we weren't communicating and we just weren't mature enough to step ahead of that uh, decision that was made for us and on his behalf. And I didn't know his parents. So there wasn't even that connection that we could possibly say, let's have a talk about this before the decision is made. So lack of maturity and the age of both of us at the time, maybe there was more fear mm -hmm. than we might recognize now as adults. So go back into the mind of a 17, 18 year old and see what decision you might have made differently than what ended up happening. Yeah, I like how you brought up, you know, how we've been talking through mental health and you know, the five primary emotions, you know, that we've touched on. And yeah, I think, I think fear was a big part of it. Right. Yeah. Fear, yeah. fear paralyzes us and, and, and doesn't always allow us to have a fully informed way of thinking. Right. And so I, I, re I really think you're right when it comes to the age, it's very hard you know, to say what could have happened. But at the same time, I do want to validate his perspective that had he maybe known, there may have been a different outcome. And so, you know, I respect that. I respect that perspective that he has. Um, so, you know, kind of 
moving us a little bit further in so we can continue this. I, I think, you know, as I was considering this episode again, I started to think about what was the timeline then of, of the journey of our relationship, you know, because we've, we've definitely talked about the timeline of our journey, right, Russ? Right, right. <laughs> and, and yeah, and because, you know, like I said, I did wait a, a, a period of time before I even broached the topic to you. Um, it was actually our relationship, my relationship with my birth father began in January of 2008. And it started with a phone call, you know, after I asked you if you knew where he was and you did share some details there. Um, do you have any more details maybe to kind of connect the dots of, of when I asked and, and, and how it evolved. I, I just, I think I remember you mentioning a few things, but maybe you might want to say a few things here. Yes. I remember when you asked, could I find him? And I was thinking of who would be the person that might know. And I was trying to think, and I even asked my sister, do you, have you heard of him? Have you seen him lately? Things like that. And finally someone said, I know where he is. And so they connected us. And that first call with him was, a, I was a bit nervous because it was like, okay, did you have any suspicion or feeling that, you know, I might be pregnant and that you would be the father? And I don't remember him saying that he had any suspicion. But when I told him that I did have a baby and I placed her for adoption and she's 36 years old and she lives in another state and all that stuff, he was shocked and he was surprised. But, you know, he was excited. And I remember him saying, OK, what's her phone number? What's her address? I want to find her and all that good stuff. And I said, well, she asked me to try to find you. So let me get back to her. And see if I could give her all of, I could give you all of that information because now it's up to you two to connect. So you said, yeah, he can have my phone number, address, and all that good stuff. And so I provided it to him and he said he would reach out to you. So while he was shocked, had no clue, at least he didn't give me an idea that he had a clue he then proceeded to reach out to you and that's when the fun began, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that first phone call, you know, like I said, came in January um, of 2008 and yeah, that, that first phone call, I think as most, anytime you're kind of intersecting two lives at, at a certain point is going to be awkward Right. And so, yes, we we had that awkward first phone call, but then it very much um, progressed to where he and his youngest son traveled to come and visit me. And I believe he spent about three or four days with me in Texas. And it was actually around the time of the Houston rodeo. So we went to the rodeo and and at the time where I was working, um, he he was able to to 
you know, kind of see the lay of the land of what I do as, as a, um, a director. And we just got to connect quite a bit. And one of the things he did that I thought was really um, impactful is that he came with kind of like a memorabilia book and it had pictures of all of my relatives. And I would say it was, you know, when we go back to talking about genetic markers, just seeing all these pictures and seeing my reflection in my family, it was spot on how much I look like my great grandmother. It was, wow. it was amazing. It was as though I was looking at myself yes. and, you know, it's weird because you think about, and I think a lot of people say this when, when their, their child, like if they're with say their son or their daughter is with the mother, they're like, Oh, I see this, 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 and that. Right. And then they see the child with their father and like, oh my God, I see this, 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 and that. And so you see the similarities and, and the, and the um, genetic markers. And that's how it felt. I, I was like, I thought for sure I'd seen all of me in you and my family. And then I see the pictures of him and his family. I'm like, oh, okay, there's even more resemblance here and there. So it was, it was quite an emotional time. It was very much of a, of a, a lot of joy um, because again, it allowed me to reconnect with another part of myself. And it kind of reminded me again of kind of when I've referenced the coming home to self, this, this was another layer of coming home as well. At the time though, that we met, um, he, had shared that his mother, which would be my grandmother, had died prior to us meeting. And his father, um, which would be my grandfather, actually died a few months after our reunion. But I did get to meet him. I did get to meet him because um, we went, me and my husband, we traveled back to California um, for the Memorial Holiday weekend where he had this huge kind of uh, party gathering of kind of coming home, kind of celebration um, for me. So again, it was another party, another celebration where mm -hmm. I greeted by a host of family and friends and, you know, everyone's looking and connecting and, and asking the story and the stories being told over and over again. And, and so I found, I found all of that, you know, just, just, an overall sense of openness and 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 acceptance, you know, right. into the family um, once again, and and yes, the the pace definitely quickened so much so that it was a lot of relationships now that I was forming, and yeah, I would say that there was some challenges along the way in kind of managing three families you know, and, mm -hmm. and I would say that I probably, I know for a fact, not even probably, I know for a fact that I was in people pleasing mode because I, I, I didn't want to say no. So I didn't do a good job of setting boundaries, which I had to learn later. Um, but I didn't do a good job of saying um, no. And I started to feel the burnout um, of just managing all those different emotions um, amidst each family. So yeah, yeah, 
any thoughts on that yeah. part shared with you? Yeah, I think primarily I was always saying your parents came first. We were emotionally involved with them, concerned about their feelings. Now, since the birth mom is in the picture, uh, I didn't think about the dynamics once the birth father came into the picture. But I can only imagine how you felt torn between three families now. Who to please? Who to visit for the holidays? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all wanted a piece of you. But I felt the need, I don't know, instinctly maybe, that maybe I'll pull back because, you know, it's still your adoptive parents that are primary and you. And then your birth father and I will just have to, I guess, take turns on filling in where we can, where you would have time for us. And so I felt the need to step back a little bit. And because we had met already and had our reunion, I sort of felt that, you know, it's okay. It's okay to give them time, them the space they need so that we can resume later maybe next year, and do something together. And we may have even thought that maybe all three families could get together and meet, but it, not, sharing, not sure how to manage that and plan that. But I think it was in the back of my mind that it would be wonderful if all three families came together. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, even though I, I recognize that I was in people pleasing mode and and I didn't say no. It was it wasn't that I didn't that I wanted to say no as well because I think a big part of reunions is you get caught up in the excitement of connecting with your first family with wanting to know all the stories and wanting to understand dynamics and and so I think I was just as much a part of that, you know, as well, you know, because I was excited and and this was so new. Right. So but but yeah, the reality is, is that I did feel the burnout. And, you know, I actually when I was looking through and connecting dots for today, I found a journal entry that oh. I I wrote. And so I want to share that I wrote this. I wrote this on actually uh, January 10th in 2009. So it must have been coming out of what a year, right? Like when I say, you know, we we connected in January um, of that year of 2008 and now 2009, a year later. So I wrote this note. I said, authentic self, not feeling divided between three families feeling as if I must act accordingly based on who I am with rather than just being me, having my own choice, not adjusting, trying to please everyone, which is very exhausting. I no longer want to act from my inner child, but rather an adult who is very capable of making her own decisions without regret. Wow. That's a lot that I said yeah. there, even though it was a short, succinct paragraph. I think I captured 
you know, what we've been talking about, this, this division that I felt between three families. Um, and, and I will say that, that that definitely began my descent where my relationships felt harder and I, and I had to regroup and kind of find myself again. What are your thoughts here? Yes, not realizing how much of an impact it was on you. You were splitting yourself in three ways, which is impossible. I think that's why I tried to back off just a little, because maybe I could sense it. But I didn't want to be the one to bring it up. Oh, You know, you said that, you know, you needed to make your own decisions as an adult and without regret. Were there any regrets or a situation that you regretted during that year of trying to balance three families? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there was actually um, a situation that, you know, I've kind of not talked a lot about, but it's it's it, it does play a big part is in the managing of all of the different emotions and who am I going to visit? And at this point, there wasn't there was a conflict that occurred between me and my adoptive mother. And that conflict led to me feeling a lot of guilt and feeling a level of discomfort about connecting or being in relationship. Um, and so I would say because of probably the intensity of me traveling, you know, and seeing everyone and trying to fit everyone in, and you use such a great word of being split, right? That it, I think, yeah, it took its toll and it led to, you know, an uncomfortable conversation <laughs> with my mom, you know, that we had to talk through and, and kind of, figure out, you know, all those different emotions with each other. And, and also, again, I think when I made the comment about not wanting to act from my inner child, I think, yeah, I think there's a natural part of you that tends to regress when you are in this type of dynamic. And I needed to still be able to find my voice as an adult that allowed me to say, I can get to choose to make these type of decisions as an adult. And yeah, I mean, it definitely took some navigating through some, you know, different conversations to get to a place of peace. But I, I guess that's part of being in family is that you're not going to always have comfortable conversations. Right. Sometimes right. you're going to step on people's toes and they're going to have their feelings hurt and you've got to figure out how to have those conversations so that both of you have some sense of understanding and acceptance with each other. And so, yeah, it definitely led to that. But then we were able to repair and improve the relationship. Yes, because, you know, you have to think your mom had you all to herself, mm -hmm. all to herself for every visit every vacation, every celebration, everything. Mm -hmm. She had you all to yourself. And now there's these two giddy little people. 
probably acting like a, their child like self yeah, to some degree yeah. too. <laughs> like we're come on, you know, let's go out come out and play with me. No, come out with, and play with me. And then the your mom was like, Well, wait a minute. What about me? So mm -hmm. I can relate. I can understand it. And you know, it would have been wise for us to step back and let you make those decisions. And I think for the most part we did. You were allowed to make those decisions and say yes or no. At some point you said, no, I'm only coming to visit so-and-so on my next trip. And you can come out here and visit me the next time. Whatever, you know, let's just go with the flow. Yeah, yeah, I do think we figured it out for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that was, I can't help but kind of smile with that that visual that came up when you said, come and play with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because actually one of our one of our our times of hanging out is that we did go to Disneyland. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have to throw that in. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of play. <laughs> yeah, we had fun. Yes. Yes. Wineries, so, Disneyland, yeah. parks, concerts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, if we connect back to these these emotions that come up. Yeah, I I was feeling some fear in certain parts. I was feeling guilt at certain parts and sorrow. And and that all of this was happening in the midst of, you know, joy as well. Exactly. You know, so, yeah, it's it. I think, again, when you think about mental health you you can you can have the experience of several emotions that can kind of be um, counter to one another and you can feel those two or three emotions at the same time and and i think it's just sometimes what what comes up naturally when you are in relationship with people you're going to have you know all the different emotions Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think about the, the five primary emotions that you shared in a previous episode. Speaking of mental health, this is all related mm -hmm. to mental health, even though we're talking about birth fathers and fathers. Mm -hmm. But it does tap into those five primary emotions you mentioned earlier in a mm -hmm. previous episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, right, if, if we even were to like we said, you know, the, the focus of our time for today is around fathers, right? And, and interestingly, you know, I, like you said earlier, I've, I had the fortune of having two mothers and two fathers, and both of my parents have passed away. Um, and now I have my first parents still, which is you, and my birth father. And I think, you know, as I'm saying that out loud, I, I think, I don't think I really connected on the fact that, you know, when you lose a parent, it, it is a lot of grief and loss. But interestingly, I still have parents. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so I, 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 I am fortunate that I still have parents that I can continue to forge a relationship with, that I continue to choose to be um, in relationship with um, at this stage in my life. Yeah. And it was good that you met your birth parents or reconnected with your birth parents while your adoptive parents were still with you because mm -hmm. you could see something, you know, it might have been a challenging act to balance, but you could see the full scope of your adoptive parents and your birth parents. And then maybe in God's timing, he saw to it that you would still be taken care of by your original birth parents when your adoptive parents passed on. And we were there with you when they passed on. So exactly. I think that we held you. We held you close. We held you tight. And we held you as you crossed that threshold of leaving your adoptive parents, but not being alone. Mm, that's excellent. That's excellent. That just captures it so wonderfully. So yeah. God knows what he's doing. I keep yeah. saying it. God knows yeah. what he's doing. And I think that was one of those things he made sure of mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. And so, you know, as I'm, as I'm continuing to learn my birth father and my birth father learn me, you know, I think it, it's only fitting for us to, you know, honor and reflect on our own fathers, yes. you know, um, and, and, you know, my, my grandfather, your father is, you said, I think he turned 93. Yes. He's 93, still kicking and screaming. My mother spoiled him to death. And so the kids left behind after she passed. We were like, oh, my goodness. Mom was doing all of that for dad, and we didn't even know it. She just did it because it was natural for her. But now we see the spoiled person <laughs> that she left behind. <laughs> and it's okay. My dad is 93. As a matter of fact, your dad would have been about 93 as well, right? Mm -hmm, because yeah. my parents and your parents were roughly the same age, mm -hmm. mom and dad. Exactly. So your grandparents were near the same age as the parents who adopted you. Yeah, yeah. Again, another another similarity you know, in that my actual adoptive parents are close in age within a year of each other with my grandparents. Yes. <laughs> so Sometimes yes. when, I, when I think of that, I really have to chuckle because you, you realized it one day. It was like, wait a minute. My parents are almost the same age as my grandparents. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe with your birth father as well. I don't know their age right off the top of my head, but you would know mm -hmm. if there was anything because we were teenagers right. when we had you. So it was like they could have been young as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. So, so yeah. So as we kind of connect, you know, with with the the um, with our fathers, um, what would you say resonates with you most about your father, my grandfather? My dad was strict. That's the first word that comes to mind. He had a military background, and he was focused on having the family household run a certain way. And my mother fell right into that. She was the doting mother and she took care of the family and she probably did everything that she wanted to do that pleased him. So he was very, very happy with the way the family was being raised. And he was the one who worked like the second job or something to make sure she could be a stay-at-home mom and take care of all the finances. He just loved my mother so much. He missed her when she passed away longer, months and months and months after she passed. Whereas the children, we grieved heavily in the beginning. And we prepared ourselves because she knew her time was running out. But my father didn't, I guess, realize it as soon as we did. And he just grieved forever and cried forever. He loved her so much that it encompassed his whole life to where he didn't function well after she was gone. So he was there for us. He helped raise his children. He took on additional jobs if he had to. But my mother was always the focus of his attention because of his deep love for her more than his children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, that was his first love. Yeah, And we were the product of that love. So, you know, it's like when she passed away, I was grieving and I remember crying and And he was like, but she was my wife before she was your mother. But she was my mother. She's still my mother. And we would go back and forth. But she was my wife before she was your mother. And I had to stop and think, well, yes, he feels the pain a lot more than I do. So let me allow him to grieve a little longer, however much time he needs. Mm -hmm. Because he was the provider. He was the loving father. He was the one who saw to it that all five children were taken care of, but most importantly, his wife. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say, I would echo that my dad was very much a provider. Um, And, and, you know, before I had the language, you know, of what I have today, you know, he was an entrepreneur, you know, he, he had his own, trucking business. Um, Mm. and, and he had, um, you know, several contracts and, you know, that meant of course that he was on the road a lot. Um, and, and my mom was a stay at home mom. Um, but I just, I remember him being firm and having a, a role of, of discipline in the home 
even when he wasn't home, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom would tell my dad, your daughter did this. You know, you need to spank her. He's like, but I wasn't here. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I would say, yes, my dad was definitely a provider. And like I said, an entrepreneur. Um, and, and I would also describe him as, as someone who was very kind and very thoughtful. Um, I also, as I reflect back and kind of observe, you know, his mannerisms, he was a man of integrity, you know, um, people trusted him. He stood by his word. Um, he did his best to, you know, show up the way that he needed to show up. And, and even as I say that, and I'm thinking, you know, he was the one, you know, how they say in the, in the work world that, you know, if, how does it go where you're not supposed to, if you, if you're, if you show up on time, you're late <laughs> kind of thing, you know, he was the person yeah. that was going to be, you know, well in, in advance of what time he needed to, you know, leave. Um, he was just a, a very uh, timely person as well. So I remember that being kind of the, the structure and the routine of him. He was very, um, I guess you could say structured and organized in how he mm. went about his business. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so what would you say that, that your, um, that your father, my grandfather taught you? He taught me to be organized, to take care of business, to watch your budget. Oh my goodness. He had this spreadsheet laid out. And he's like, here's how you do. You look at your income and then you look at your expenses. Do not let your expenses exceed your income. So he was financially uh, instructed with his children, you know, take care of business, take care of your family, watch how you spend your money. And I think that was probably the biggest thing. I mean, I may not remember if he got on the ground with us and played marbles and, but he did play cards. He played Monopoly. Oh, and he won every time. <laughs> we got to the point, we don't want to play with daddy anymore, mom. <laughs> he wins all the time. And he's like, that's how it's supposed to be played. So you just have to learn to win too. And we were like, but we don't, we don't know how to win. Can you just let us win sometimes? No, you have to learn. So okay. <laughs> he play, he was playful, but yes. he was also at that higher level, like, mm -hmm. you know, keep up with me. I'll show you. And that's what we did. You know, we just followed whatever he told us to do. And he was fun, but he was strict and he was fair. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, when I think about it, it's so funny how when you when you think back and again, like I said, I didn't have the language to say that he was an entrepreneur, you know, until now I'm an entrepreneur. So maybe somewhere in the path of life and, you know, reflecting, you know, he taught me those skills because, he, again, he was a responsible person. He was diligent and how he um, went about, you know, keeping his business um, afloat. There were some circumstances that were beyond his control, of course. But yeah, I would say that I learned to be responsible. I learned to 
you know, be a person of my word. You know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do my best to follow through on what I said I was going to do. Um, I'm, I'm going to communicate if I'm not able, you know, to do said thing. So, so yeah, I would, I would definitely say that those were some qualities um, that I learned from my dad. So, so here's another question that I want to, I'm, I'm curious to kind of know if you, if you got from your, if, if you experienced this from, from your father, do you feel like he knew you, like knew you in the sense of like understood that, that part of you when maybe you were, were sad or you were afraid or, or that he knew what you liked? Do you think that my grandfather knew you? Not in that regard. I think that he just looked at me filling the picture of his daughter and that he needed to make sure I was okay. But to then turn inward and then say, I know what she's going through. I could tell by the look on her face that such and such is happening. I don't think he knew me in that regard. What about your dad? Yeah, I agree. I, I, and again, you know, I, I, you know, try to put myself in that, that headspace of when we were on road trips together and, you know, we would travel and, and, and I mean, he was, he was a very talkative kind of guy and he definitely would let me yap. (laughs) Uh-huh. And so, so he probably knew me better than I realized. I think, I think as in a teenager, I don't think he knew me. And I think too, when you look at as a teenager, you tend to go inside more and you tend to relate more to your peers more. So you don't share as much about yourself, you know, with your family as oh. you would um, because, you, you know, everything is about your friends and, and what you guys can do. So I don't, I don't think he knew me that well as I got older um, and that could have just been me pulling away from him. And then also, you know, because most of my relationship and my time was with my mom, you know, yeah, I, feel like, I feel like she just, she was just the one that, you know, we were just going to talk, <laughs> you know, and mothers can read their children just by the side eye. You know what right. I mean? They know they right. definitely can read. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I don't, yeah. So I agree. I think I probably just preferred to lean into my mom more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Cause she mm-hmm. probably would have pulled it out of you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Mothers do that. Yes, <laughs> they do. They do. So then I guess maybe the same response here then do you, do you think that if you had chose to open up, to your dad, that he would listen, that he would, you know, have that empathetic ear and take in your perspective. Yeah, I think it would have been at the prompting of me or my mother Mm -hmm. to say, you need to talk to Roz about this, or Roz wants to ask you a question. (gasps) Oh, um, yeah, dad, um, can I go to the dance this weekend (laughs) with my friends? I figured he might say no. And then, of course, he said no. And then I would run to my room and cry. It's like, Mom, why don't you ask for me? And she's like, no, you have to ask yourself that he's your father. And 
his decision is final. Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess I'm going to be an old maid, never get married, never go out, because dad is going to always say no to anything. So. Yeah, the same thing for me. I'm telling Why you, my dad, like I said, because he could, he didn't have to be home. But, you know, there was back then before cell phones, there was the routine of when you knew that he was going to call. Right. It was a oh. time of day that he was going to call. And it generally was if there was some kind of request being made. OK, well, we need to wait until we talk to your dad. And I just was like, I know he's going to say no. And why yeah. does he get, and you know what, as I'm thinking this, I would think, why does he get to say no when he's not here? <laughs> Yeah. And why does he get to say no first instead of listening to the rest of the story? It's just immediate no. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That was very, very hard. Very, very hard to accept no. And he wasn't present. Oh, I do God. remember that. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so then what about... How how would you say you saw your dad? And you kind of said some of this already. Um, so maybe I'll lead with it this time. So, you know, in terms of how I saw my mom treat, I mean, how I saw my dad treat my mom. And, and I would say, you know, my dad was, and I hope I say it correctly, he was a very chivalrous man. He was a, he was a gentle man. Um, he did the the, you know, the opening of the doors, the pulling out of the chairs, the, you know, I don't remember him having a harsh tone, you know, at least in my ear, I didn't hear him have a harsh tone with my mom. I, I saw him as someone who was patient, you know, that would listen. Uh, I'm not, not to say that he didn't have his opinions and that those opinions had weight, but it wasn't, just as he could say very no, quickly no to me for things, I didn't see that with my mom. You know, I saw my mom having a voice and being able to express herself and that being a part of the conversation. What about you? Yeah, I think the same thing. Chivalry is a good word. Opening the car door, pulling out the seat for your mother, he was so gentle and kind with my mother. And I think he was setting an example for his sons. This is how you are mm. supposed to be with the women in your life. And it carried forward because I believe my brothers were like that as well. And so the girls saw that. And that's how we expected to be treated when we were going to meet boys and mm -hmm and get married and have those same levels of expectations. So he was a good role model for all of his children, boys and girls, because yeah. he was so gentle and so loving with our mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm wondering if you have any, any other thoughts or reflections about your dad. Well, my dad is still here. He's 93. And I watch him. And although he's moving a little slower, his hearing and his vision 
is declining a little bit. He's still dead because sometimes I catch a glimpse of him and I see the young version of him. I see the pictures of when we were taking uh, pictures in front of Big Mama's house for Christmas or something. And I see this young man surrounded by his wife and five children and smiling. And I see that and I reflect on this is still my dad, even though he's older, even though he's moving a little bit slower. And I might have to repeat a thing or two because he didn't quite hear me as clearly as he used to. He's still my dad. And I see that little grin and I see that little walk in him where it's like, this is the man that I grew up loving and respecting. And he was the epitome of what a man should be. And I just love him for that. And I cherish every moment with him. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm, I think I found, you know, as I'm listening and connecting dots, there's, there was a moment where I could say that my birth father and my father, there was an intersection in their lives to one okay. another. So, so my dad died in 2013 and it was, it was what we call a, the language is usually like anticipatory. I went through anticipatory grief because he had an illness. He had Parkinson's. And so his death was slow, right, and painful. Um, but during the time that he was in the hospital, um, a little bit before he was placed on hospice care, my birth father would go and visit him in the hospital. Mm. And, um, and my birth father would share with me that he would go and although my father could not um, say a lot, he said that he experienced him as being open to him being in the room with him. You know, he would he would try to have some level of dialogue or, you know, just be in the presence of him and and just kind of, you know, try to have a presence. Um, and, and that really, really impacted me that my birth father would take the time to go and visit my adoptive dad at a time when, you know, he was not well. And I think that showed a lot of care, you know, a lot of care. Yes. So I, <clears throat> I appreciate how their lives intersected at that particular moment because Again, I think if I was to say, as I'm learning my birth father, that was a quality, you know, that I got to see of how he could be caring and, and, and display respect, you know, mm -hmm. to my adoptive father by, you know, choosing to go and be by his bedside, you know, yes. during those last days. So, yeah, yes. so that's, that's a powerful memory that I have. That's a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful memory. The intersection mm -hmm. of your fathers. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
That is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've had quite a full episode. And we are coming to the point where we can kind of say, well, I think we're at a good point to pause and, and close out our episode. Do you have anything further to add in before we sign off? I want to say happy Father's Day to adoptive fathers, mm -hmm. to birth fathers, mm -hmm. to soon-to-be fathers, to fathers who may not have a real connection with their children, but they have some connection. They were part of their life when they were born. And if they were not, they can reconnect now. Be strengthened in the idea knowing that you have rights. You have the value that your child needs, the balance of mother and father, and be that person to your child, even if they're an adult already. If they're little, they're going to miss you when you're not around, even if you don't think so. They will miss you when you're not around. So be present, be loving, be part of the family unit, whether you're married to the birth mom or not. But if you are lucky enough to be married and have a whole family unit still together with the mother of your children and any other siblings you have, be present, be grateful, be thankful, because we love you. You are our father a representative of the guiding light that God wants to shine on us. God wants us to see in our fathers. Be that light. And thank you for being our father. Oh, wow. That is so amazing. Thank you so much for that. Well, everyone, we hope that you have enjoyed our show today. And once again, if you're not subscribed, please go ahead and click the like button. Click the subscribe button. We really do appreciate when you leave us a review because those reviews help to boost our ratings and helps more people to see our show. So be sure to come back June 21st for another great episode. And we get that there are many podcasts out there. And we're so happy that you choose ours again and again. So until then, this is Tay and Roz, where we talk all things adoption and reunion, but with a twist.